Almighty. So we are picking up chapter 6. We're still in that observation stage. We've talked about how we're going to move from observation to interpretation and then application. So we're still in the observation stage, looking at the text, trying to observe everything we can, lay everything out on the table so that as we move to that interpretive stage, we have the right questions to ask. We can dive into studying different words, different ideas, things like that. And so Um, We're going to talk this morning about literary features that we want to observe as we study the Bible. I think I've got this on the screen and in your notes. Uh, I like this quote. They quote uh, Bauer and Trina in the book, and they say, One of the primary ways in which one can nurture exactness and precision in observation is to give specific labels to what one observes. Indeed, one is more likely to observe the various elements present in the text if one has labels or categories at hand. And so that's what we're going to do this morning is give some labels and some categories of these literary features to be on the lookout for as we're studying the text. So uh, hopefully giving some, some uh, terms like this and some labels will help us to, to notice that in Scripture and to be able to label, okay, this is what we're observing. Uh, they also say in the book, the Bible communicates meaning not only by what it says, but also by how it says it. So scripture uses various literary features to communicate in a certain way and um, to drive home the point many times. So we're going to talk about some of these features and how they do that. So the first one is repetition. We're going to look at 10, uh, and we're actually going to split this chapter into two weeks because there's 10 literary features, and then I think there were 10 Um, figures of speech, and so I like to give examples for each of these, not rush through them, make sure we understand what what we're talking about and see some examples in Scripture as well. So we're going to look at ten literary features this morning. The first one is, you see there, repetition. Uh, This is when a word, phrase, or concept is used more than once in a passage, okay? So uh, turn to Romans 11. We're going to flip around a little bit as we observe these. So Romans chapter 11, because I like to see the transition from Romans 11, these verses, to, to uh, Romans 12.1. So again, the idea at hand is, is um, repetition. So as we look at this passage, what repetition do you see in the following passage? So we'll look for uh, a word that's repeated um, in this passage. So Romans 11 verse 28 to 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And we'll stop there. I actually read one verse too far. So did you notice any repetitions there? There's one specific one the book points out, but there's a couple you might might observe. Disobedience, I noticed that as well. Mercy is the one the book points out. And so... As you think about this word, it's repeated, mercy, mercy, mercy. And really, uh, we could go all the way back to, I believe it was Romans 9, and we can see this train of thought building 
uh, really even throughout the book of Romans, about God's mercy, about God's grace. And so here he's, this is kind of the close of this argumentation that he's been making about God's mercy. And so he hits mercy, mercy, mercy. And then look at chapter 12, verse 1, and see how that can, the conclusion of that train of thought leads really to a transition in verse 1 of chapter 12, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's been talking about mercy here in these verses as he wraps up that argument on mercy. He then transitions to chapter 12, which becomes way more from 12 on is more practical. Okay, Now, based on the mercies of God that we've been talking about, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So this would be a good case where we see repetition, we see him making a point, and then that transition um, to applying that. Okay? Another example, uh, flip back to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 in verse 10. Now here's, here's an interesting example because nothing is probably going to stand out to you as we read it in English. And so this would be a case where uh, understanding the original language, in this case Hebrew, would be a benefit. So in Jonah 3.10 and then Jonah 4.1, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Okay? So really, looking at it in English, we don't really see any words re- repeated. But as we look at the Hebrew, the word for evil, so when God saw uh, what they did, how they turned from their evil, it's the Hebrew word ra. So when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, ra, uh, their evil way, God relented of the disaster, that's that word again, Ra, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Then when we get into Jonah 4, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and that word's actually used twice, Ra, Ra, which means it's not a cheerleader, Ra, Ra, uh, in that sense, it's more saying it displeased him exceedingly, it's repeated to show just how upset Jonah was by that. And so as we look at the, that transition from the end of chapter 3, into chapter 4, that's something that should catch our attention, that we should observe, that God's using that word to make a point in that, okay? Um, The other example is really the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Can anybody think, as you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, can you think of any phrases or words that are repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes? Can you think of anything? Vanity, yes, absolutely. So, Vanity or futility or meaninglessness, depending on the translation, that word is repeated throughout. All is vanity, uh, vanity upon vanities, things like that. You also see phrases like under the sun, nothing, nothing's new under the sun, pursuit of the wind, which is him just talking about how everything, every pursuit in life apart from God is meaningless, is, it's a pursuit of wind. He talks about enjoying life, and then there's nothing better. So we see really in a, a whole book, certain ideas repeated, and so that should, as we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, that should catch our attention and say, we need to understand what what that word means and what the idea is because it's repeated so frequently. The next 
uh, literary feature is what we call escalation. Okay, this is when a line of argument builds towards a climax. Okay, there's a couple examples of this. We're actually going to use one here in a little bit, and so you'll see it again. And, and it, just as we talked about before, um, with other uh, ideas we've talked about, sometimes uh, these literary features don't fit in a neat category. Sometimes there might be passages where we see repetition and escalation and various things. We'll see, see an example of that in a little bit as well. But turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a pretty classic passage, and, and this will be a great example of uh, escalation, okay? And they actually say in the book, try reading this without your, your tone changing, right? It's almost impossible. So you feel the argument building. You feel it reaching a climax. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, you see the escalation of that. You see Paul building that argument, and at the end, it's just, you can't read those words, you know, just in a ho-hum fashion. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your... As you're naturally reading it, you feel that escalation building. And so many times, as we would see in in various passages, that's used to really bring home, just like a preacher's preaching and is going to use that tone to uh, really bring home the message. So escalation is something to look out for in scripture. The next one is contrast and comparison, okay? Contrast and comparison. When words, phrases, concepts, or figures are juxtaposed against something else as a means of further explanation, okay? So there's a couple examples here. Galatians 5, so if you flip over there, Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. So think about um, what, what is the contrast in this passage. See if you can pick it out. Okay, Galatians 5, 16 uh, through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what are the two big ideas that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing Galatians, is contrasting here? Spirit and flesh, right? It's very, very clear. He even says they're against one another. So this is a great example of here's the Spirit. We're contrasting it with the flesh. Uh, Here's what it means to walk by the Spirit. Here's what it means to walk by the flesh. Here's the fruit of the flesh or the works of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, what that looks like. And so you see this contrast very clearly. Um, another one is the book of Proverbs. What is the, throughout the book of Proverbs, what is the main contrast that exists in it throughout the book of Proverbs? Right, the wise man or wisdom, the foolish man, foolishness. You see wisdom, folly, that idea throughout uh, the Proverbs. Absolutely. Think about uh, Rahab and Achan, and we're not going to turn there because it really spans multiple chapters in the book of Joshua, Joshua 2, chapter 2 through chapter 7, but can you think of any, if you're familiar with Rahab and Achan, can you think of any contrasts in their life, and they're right there together in those chapters, and the differences are so clear that it seems like God's making a point by contrasting uh, Rahab and Achan, can you think of any any differences between the two? Probably been a while since you've looked at that passage, but what's the most obvious one, obvious difference between Rahab and Achan? There you go. She's a female, he's a male, right? What other differences? What about their nationality? Who's Rahab? She from Israel? No, she's a Canaanite, right? What about Achan? What nationality is he? You know? Yeah, so he was an Israelite, right? He was part of the tribe of Judah, actually. And what do we know about the tribe of Judah? Anything specific you can think of? Who who came through the line of Judah? The lion, which is who? Jesus, right? Judah is specifically the Messianic line. And so... Here, it's really fascinating to think about this. I've never really thought of it in this way. And so this is a great way that by being aware of contrast, we could notice, seems like God's really trying to say something here. Rahab is a female Canaanite. Uh, What's her lifestyle? She's a prostitute. She's immoral, right? Um, And then Achan is of the Israelites, right? He's he's a man from the tribe of, of Judah, uh, Rahab, though, has an act of faith, which is what? What's her act of faith? She hides, hides the spies. What did Achan hide? He hid something as well. He hid the spoils from that God said when they wipe out the city to, to not take anything. He hid spoils. So, and that's an act of really rebellion against what God said. And so you see both of them are hiding something, her in faith, him in sin. And what's fascinating is Rahab... Because of her faith, she's spared, and she actually is part of the Messianic line of Christ. She's brought into that line of Christ, whereas Achan, who's in the line, the tribe of Judah, is he and his family are taken out of that line because of his rebellion. And so this is a great example of contrast where it seems like God is specifically, I mean, even in the Old Testament, demonstrating its grace by faith, right? It's not your position, it's not your status, that kind of thing, it's his grace through faith, right? Uh, one of my favorites um, is the last example, Nicodemus and the woman at the well. 
And these are right back to back in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, we see the woman at the well. What are some contrasts between Nicodemus and the woman at the well? Okay, absolutely. So he comes at night. She's in broad daylight. What else? Joseph? She's a Samaritan. Yeah, he's Jewish. Yeah, what else? Yeah, so he's a, he's a male, she's a female. Right, so she's living an immoral life. She's been divorced. Um, she's with a man that is not her husband, Jesus says. He's a morally upstanding Pharisee, right? Um, can you think of any others? I think those are the main ones. But what's amazing is, and, and I love this, I would, I would almost encourage you, you can go back to John chapter 2, but at the end of John chapter 2, it actually talks about how Jesus didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in man. And then chapter 3 starts with, here's a man, Nicodemus, and Jesus sees right through his heart. He comes saying uh, something very kind, we know you're from God, you couldn't do these things, and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, and has this conversation, and and, and doesn't reveal himself at that moment that he's the Messiah to Nicodemus. If, any, if there was anybody that you'd think would be fitting for him to reveal that he's the chosen one of Israel, it would be Nicodemus, but he doesn't. But then in the very next chapter, here's this immoral woman in Samaria, Samaria um, and Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah, right? And what's her response? She goes and brings people back and says, basically what we looked at last week, come and see the man who told me everything that I ever did. So this is a very prominent contrast. This is something we wouldn't need to... Uh, sometimes we can think of these passages or these, these accounts as standalone, but it's great when we see how God is making a point here, that it's, he's not just coming to the righteous. And, of course, we believe Nicodemus later probably put, put his faith in Christ because he's there uh, collecting the body of, of Jesus. We don't know that for sure, but um, he's demonstrating very clearly, I think, John, that... Christ came for those who would recognize that they're sinners and recognize their need and put their faith in him. And so contrast, we didn't really touch on comparison, but a very similar thing. There may be passages that are comparing ideas. The next literary feature is association. This is when words, phrases, or motifs relate to one another in association. Okay? Um, many times contrast and, and comparison can infer association, but other times they they uh, association may exist outside of contrast and comparison. So sometimes it's very clear uh, in a passage, this versus this. Sometimes it's not as clear. And so the examples, uh, we're not going to look in depth at these, but 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. Then if we go to 1 Corinthians 13, which is right in the middle of that, he touches on love. So in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts, Paul also talks about love. Well, then if you look at Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul's also talking about spiritual gifts there. And then in Romans 12, 9 through 20, so right after that, he talks on love. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. And in Ephesians 4, 13 to 16, he talks about love. So in, in each of these passages where he's talking about spiritual gifts, you see his teaching on love right there together. And so this is not going to be something we're 
aware of unless we study, unless we see this idea. And so this is an association between spiritual gifts and love, right? And really chapter 13 demonstrates that the best, is that apart from love, even if you have all these gifts, it's pointless. Um, so we see why they're associated. Any thoughts on that? And keep moving here. The next one is question and answer. Okay. This is when questions are used to frame an argument. Okay. When questions are used to frame an argument. Turn to Romans uh, chapter 6 and we'll see an example of this. So these are very, very common in the Pauline epistles especially. But sometimes these questions are, are rhetorical. What's a rhetorical question? Okay, yeah, how else would you maybe explain a rhetorical question? Yeah, it's, there's not meant to be an answer, so uh, it's more of a question that's not meant to be, to be answered, and sometimes the answer is provided by the person asking the question. So other times the questions may be um, interrogative, so they're actually seeking a response, okay? So first example is Romans 6, 1 through 14. So Paul is... Uh, at the end of Romans 5, talked about God's grace, that Christ came, uh, that through Adam all men die, but through Christ all men live, and that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so this leads to his question in Romans 6, uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So this is a rhetorical question which he answers. By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in, uh, him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's really predicting a question that his readers may be thinking as they come to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, and he says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and he's already kind of predicting that they're probably going to say, well, man, if Grace abounds where sin, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more, then why don't we just keep sinning and that will magnify God's grace, right? The greater our sin, the greater his grace. And so Paul then basically knows that train of thinking that may be existent. And he says, well, what should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says, by no means, right? So he's using these rhetorical questions to then lead them to, no, you've died to sin. So your pursuit should be holiness. Your pursuit should be Christ-likeness. If you flip over just a couple of chapters, we see another question, example of a question and answer in Romans eight thirty-one to 39. And this is another passage where we see escalation in this passage as well. So note the question and, and also, or the questions, and also note the escalation through this passage, okay? Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see these questions. What can separate us from God's love? Who can bring a charge? Like These are rhetorical questions that he's building this case and demonstrating nothing can separate us. And you, so you feel the escalation in that, just like in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's just, it's just like the preacher's getting going, right? He's, he's driving the point home. And so here's an example of question and answer. The next one, literary feature, are conjunctions, okay? Conjunctions. We're familiar with these words that direct the flow of a discourse. So um, what are some examples of conjunctions in, in grammar? Anybody a grammar uh, whiz in here? That was never my specialty. And, but, yeah, connect, connecting words, right? I think of that. What was it? Um, what's it called? The conjunction, junction? What, what is that? The schoolhouse rock? Is that what it's called? Yeah. That comes to mind, right? So these are words that link ideas together. So the book, they, they have this quote, and I like this. Beyond the basic functions such as forming lists, establishing parallel thoughts, or dictating basic contrast, conjunctions also relay causal relationships explain reasons, facilitate inference, and perhaps most, significant, most significantly link together independent clauses. Conjunctions thus act as, as signposts in the text, assisting in the development of, line of, of the line of argument and directing the flow of thought in a passage of Scripture. Reading Scripture without giving attention to conjunctions is like driving on an unfamiliar street without reading the road signs. We'll almost certainly get lost. So being aware of these conjunctions and how they're meant to tie arguments together or, or maybe change the, the focus, that kind of thing, is important. So the first example is fitting. This is actually the passage Pastor Justin is going to be uh, really examining this morning. But I want us to see it, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And notice there's really many throughout this passage. Um, but, but notice some of the big ones, right? And, and, and think of them. I want to you, get you to give me examples of important conjunctions in this passage, okay? So it actually starts with one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then here's probably my favorite conjunction in all of Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what are some big ones, big conjunctions you see in that passage? I pointed out, the biggest one is probably verse 4. 
So we were dead, we were disobedient, we were condemned, but God, who is rich in mercy. So that's a big conjunction. What else? Okay. Verse, verse 6, um, yeah, it's tying those thoughts together. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show them marriage. So you're seeing how these conjunctions are used to, to add on, to show the purpose, to, to, to build uh, that flow of discourse. Okay? The next example is just a couple chapters over, Ephesians 4.1. So if you know anything about the basic structure of Ephesians, you know uh, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is really laying out a lot of theological... And I, Am I still in your thunder? I see you smiling. I don't want to steal too much. I, when you're smiling, I'm like, oh boy, I, I wonder if you're touching on this. Right, yeah. Right, right. So chapter 1 through 3, Paul is laying out a lot of theological, very weighty stuff. And then chapters 4 through 6 is the practical outworking of that. And so we see the importance of that conjunction in the very beginning of uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a very important conjunction uh, it's funny, the book actually pointed this out, but I've, I think I've said it, Pastor Justin's probably said it, um, when you're going through Bible college and you're learning different tools, you know, in understanding scripture, I remember, I think it was Dr. Carfrey, would always tell us, if you see therefore, what's the question you ask? What is it therefore, right? And the book actually said the exact same thing. So anytime we see that, what is that therefore? Well, in light of what we've laid out, your position in Christ Here's the practical walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So those are important conjunctions. They're not just there um, to fill space. They're really there to transition ideas, to tie in uh, thoughts together. And so conjunctions are, are very useful literary features we want to be aware of. The next one are conditional clauses. These are clauses that contain a statement of condition. Okay, So what... Typically, when you see a condition, what two words would we find? If you're thinking, if you're going to give someone a condition, what are the two words you use to lay out that condition? If and then, right? If you do this, then this will happen, right? So these are important, those if, then, and sometimes it's not as clear. Um, sometimes we'll see the if, but not necessarily the then, but you can actually put the then in there and it makes sense. Um, the book tells us there are a little over 600 conditional clauses in the New Testament. Okay? There are times when it assumes the condition as true for the sake of argument to be rhetorical. So I'm just going to read through these because these are one verse. Uh, Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So uh, Paul is assuming that this is true for his readers. If it's true that you are in Christ, that you've been raised with Christ, then you should be seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated. So he's assuming this is true to make an argument. If this is the case, then this is what you would be doing. Okay? There's other times where it may assume that something's not true. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? So this is a, a question as well, a rhetorical question. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
So he's using this in a negative sense. If that were the case, I would not be doing what I'm doing. Okay? Other times it may suggest an uncertain but probable outcome. 1 John 2, uh, verse 1, where John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we could add the word then, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So um, this is expressing there's probably, I mean, there's the certainty as believers we're going to sin. We shouldn't uh, desire that. He's writing these things so we can grow and, and kill sin in our life. But if we do sin, really, when we do sin, we have an advocate with Jesus. Okay? So these are conditional clauses we want to be on the lookout for in this observational stage. We've got to keep moving. We've got a couple more. Illustration, pretty straightforward. An example of some kind which serves to clarify a point. Um, this is many times just like a sermon illustration where uh, an illustration that we're all familiar with is used to drive home a point. Sometimes, most times, there's probably a singular focus to that illustration. But sometimes in Scripture, there may be a couple things in view uh, in that illustration, okay? Um, I'm probably not going to go in depth with Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but it begins, it gives us really the ultimate illustration of Christ. But I do want to read uh, what the book says about this passage, because especially in this passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, we see multiple literary features. And so let me just read what the book says, and as you're, if you're familiar with Philippians 2, hopefully you can follow along. So the book says, To demonstrate the importance of observing illustration in the text, consider the relationship of Philippians 2, 1 through 4, to 2, 6 through 11. Through a first-class condition, so it starts with a conditional statement, verses 1 through 2, followed by contrastive imperatives in verses 3 through 4, Paul builds an argument instructing the Philippian believers to live with one another in a spirit of humility. While his point is quite clear in verses 1 through 4, he brings the argument to a climax. And he, they, the book says, can you see the escalation here? It's, there's escalation in that passage as well. By pointing the reader to the ultimate example of humility, the incarnate Christ. As, theolo- as theologically rich as Paul's rhetoric uh, in verse 6 through 11 is, and he actually says, or quotation, question mark, because we're going to talk about quotation next. The primary function of this text is to illustrate the attitude of humility he's calling the Philippians to emulate. Paul is making a very practical point of exhortation to the church, and he illustrates his point by drawing his reader's attention to Jesus, the ultimate example of looking to the interest of others. To miss this relationship is to miss the very point Paul is trying to make in the passage. So here's an illustration. You want to be humble, you want to think about other interests, look to the ultimate example, Jesus. Another one is 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 7. For the sake of time, I'm not going to uh, have you turn there either. Um, but here in that passage, so that's right after 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things you've heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. To hammer that home, Paul uses three illustrations. A soldier of Christ, uh, an athlete. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes. And a, a hardworking farmer. So they're... Three examples that if you weren't familiar with one, if you weren't a soldier, well, maybe you're a farmer, maybe you're an athlete, or you at least are familiar with that. So he uses those illustrations to drive home the point. The next one is quotation. Pretty straightforward here. Uh, there's really no, there's, there's tons of examples in Scripture, so I'm not going to point any one out. But this is just, this is uh, echoes, allusions, and quotations of previous material, most notably, notably the Old Testament and the New. 
The New Testament quotes the Old Testament over 250 times. Um, and that's probably not even counting the allusions. Uh, like it's interesting, the book of Revelation does not have any direct quote to the Old Testament. But throughout, there's allusions. There's things that we can't help but think about passage after passage in the Old Testament. So the New Testament does that very often. Um, the one thing they encourage us with, be aware if there's a variation. Sometimes you'll read a quote in the New Testament, and if you go back to find where that's quoted from in the Old Testament, you notice there's a little difference. There's a little bit of a variation. Why do you think that may be? Might be a couple reasons why it's slightly different in the New Testament as in the Old. Okay? A lot of times what it is, is in a lot of times the New Testament authors, of course, what was the New Testament written in? What language? Koine Greek. Old Testament, for the most part, Hebrew, some Aramaic. And so many times the New Testament authors are quoting not directly from the Hebrew, they're quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And so there might be some variations because it's a translation of a translation. It's a quotation of... Uh, from a translation that they used, okay? Sometimes it might be because the, uh, the person quoting, the author, might have been specifically pointing out something uh, from that quotation and maybe left something out, okay? The last one is irony, okay? Uh, what is irony, Pastor Justin? That's incorrect. Uh, it's a figure of speech in which words express opposite meaning from what is intended, or where plot outcomes are opposite of what is expected. That's an inside joke, by the way. So I was hoping you'd be in here for me to ask that. So, again, we don't have time to look at this example, but Job 38. Um, great, great chapter, really, 38 through 40. So Job, of course, has suffered. He's questioned, why would God do this? He's basically told his friends, if I get the chance to see God face to face, I'm going to ask him why he's doing this, why, why has he brought this upon me? I'm, I've not sinned in any way that deserves this. And then Job 38 comes along, and who's asking the questions? God is putting him on the stand. And so we see this irony. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Can you do this? And there's all these rhetorical questions that he asks, which leaves Job speechless at the end, and he just has to bow and, and worship God. Okay, So that's an example of irony being used. Um, I want to do want to read this quote real quick. Irony is not so much something funny as a joke would be. It is rather akin to paradox in that it strikes one as unusual or out of the ordinary, perhaps because it involves double entendre or a person speaking or acting better than they know. Irony is used across the spectrum of genres in the Bible, saturating biblical narrative, enhancing prophetic oracles, and adding texture to the New Testament letters. Irony, however, can be missed resulting in misinterpretation and a lack of appreciation for what the writer is really trying to communicate. The attentive reader will keep his or her eyes peeled for irony in Scripture. So you see it throughout, and so it's important to try to catch it when it comes. The last concluding thing, um, and, and like I said, this is really halfway through the chapter. We're going to get into figures of speech next week and walking through those. Um, but the last example, it didn't really fit under as a literary feature. It's really an overarching idea is the idea of tone, okay? Uh, we could give an example, illustration today of how it's difficult to communicate tone in a text message. But we can many times read the tone of someone depending on the context. And so as we come to Scripture, our idea is to try to capture the tone 
of what the author is trying to communicate. Just like we looked at those passages in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8 where there's escalation. We can read into that tone. It's usually pretty straightforward. We can usually pick it out. Um, And and they encourage, if if it's not readily uh, noticeable, try reading it out loud. And as you hear, as you read it out loud, you can sometimes hear the tone that the author was probably trying to communicate. Okay? Um, an example, Galatians 3, 1 through 4, pretty simple illustration. We can tell the tone of this. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So here you see the power of Paul word, Paul's words. He's not just, uh, you foolish Galatians. And you can read the tone, you can feel the tone. And so be on the lookout for that as you're reading and studying Scripture as well. Okay?